You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. Well, good morning. Um... We're currently looking at the book of Acts, as you're probably aware, it keeps popping up on the screen and we've been doing it for about a million years now. Um, and, and we've got just three weeks left and now you're probably thinking, hang on, Ian was in chapter seven last, year, uh, last week, uh, we've got three weeks left of this, including today, how's that going to work? Well, it's, it's going to work, bear, bear with us on this, it's going to work. Um, if you are behind on it or if you want to know what has already been said, what's already been shared, because this isn't just like having a moment on a Sunday morning where we share a nice story and kind of encourage each other. Everything that we're preaching is what we believe God is laying on our hearts for the life of this fellowship. Uh, And so if we are connected as family within this fellowship, you know, we just really encourage you, if you've missed a couple, go back and and listen to what's been said. That would be fantastic. And, and, And the Go Deeper notes as well, just really encourage you to get into those. Now, last week, uh, Pastor Ian preached on uh, Stephen, and actually it was a kind of a, a, a parallel between Stephen and Saul, two contrasting figures, one, one holy and the other murderous. But something I want to point out here is that, that both motivated church growth. Both motivated church growth. Now, we'll be looking at Acts chapter 8 this week, which continues really where Ian left off at the end of chapter 7 last week. And it opens with the sentence, and Saul approved of his execution. What a way to open a chapter. Actually, when the Bible was written, uh, Luke didn't write chapters. He didn't give you the nice little headings like, you know, Philip in Samaria or something like that. So, so actually, this is just a continued thought. But Saul approved of his execution. What a place to begin. Some of you might be watching the series MasterChef The Professionals. Is anyone watching that? Great. It's such, I don't bother watching the amateurs, you know. I just want to see the professionals at work, you know. And every, every new contender has to go through the same test. So if you don't know, this is how it happens. When they, when they arrive, then they don't even speak to or meet the judges before the skills test. And this is a daunting test that is either set by Monica Galletti or Marcus Waring, two top chefs in their, uh, chefs in their field. Uh, and basically, what they do is they demonstrate this task that, within reason, the chefs should know. And what they're looking for is to see that the chefs can work around it even if they don't know and try and put something on the plate. They give them 15 to 20 minutes. That's a bit tight, I think. And, and there's sometimes I'm watching this and I feel pretty smug. Because I'm watching Marcus or Monica doing that little demonstration. I'm like, yep, I would rock that one. <laughs> I'd be all over that. Uh, and, and then there's somewhere I'm kind of frustrated and I'm kicking myself because I think, well, I should know. <laughs> and I know it's in there. You know, as you get older, <laughs> like you might appreciate where I'm at with this, that, that as you get older, you know, some of those things that you learned when you were younger, they're still there, but you can't quite find which cupboard in your brain you've put them in. And... Uh, uh, yeah, so I get frustrated and think I should know it. And then there's sometimes, if I'm honest, I've got no clue whatsoever. And I think if I walked in to MasterChef The Professionals on that skills test, I'll be out the door first day. <laughs> that, that would be it for me. There's a couple of basic skills, though, that every chef should know. 
One of them that they've done recently is a bechamel sauce, a white sauce. Um, uh, it's where you have to make a roux out of flour and butter, and you have to make sure that you cook out the flour but not burn it. And then you have to heat up the milk and then add the milk to it gradually. Because if you don't add it gradually, beating it all the time, and it's cheating to use a whisk, if you, if you don't beat it the whole time, it, you, you've got a risk of a lumpy white sauce, and nobody wants a lumpy white sauce. Okay, indeed, absolutely. When it comes out of the gravy pot, it's just like, like that. So nobody wants that. Uh, and, and the other one's the souffle. Which, again, actually, in principle, is fairly a simple conception. But in execution, it's really difficult to get right. But a chef should know what he's doing. He should have a good idea of this. The thing is, with a bechamel and a souffle, is that both of them require hard work. If you're not sweating, if your bicep isn't aching, you're not doing it right. That's what I was told uh, in my first hotel. If you aren't in pain doing this, if you don't want to, st- if you're at the point where you're like, I want to stop, and you know, if you don't get to that point, you're not doing it properly. You can't tickle the sauce. You get a burnt sauce. And, uh, and the thing is, apply that to real life. And, and you'll hear people say things like, no pain, no gain. You heard that down the gym, Graham, you know, he's got his little playlist on his, he's running the treadmill, no pain, no gain. Come on, Graham, come on. Or, or the seemingly scriptural kind of version of that, which is we all have our, our cross to bear. Seems to be scriptural. And I think what that means is we all face our difficulties, our limitations, our frustrations, but it's part of life. Uh, and in a sense, you know, that's kind of true. But when Jesus says, take up your cross, he, he's not saying bear with the niggles of life. The annoyances, the frustrations. That's not what he's saying when he says, take up your cross. Remember, the cross was an instrument of torture, suffering, persecution. That's the cross. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. And here's the thing. Suffering is part of life. It's inevitable. It's unavoidable. But it's also beneficial it's inevitable because it will happen it's unavoidable because no matter what you try to do to get out of its way it will find you at some point some place and whatever it looks like whether it's health whether it's finances whether it's confidence whatever it is suffering will find you at some point but it's also beneficial biblically It's beneficial. It's a place of building our character and building our faith. Now, Satan might cause something, but God has the ultimate say in its effect. I'll say that again. Satan might cause something, but God has the ultimate say on its effect in your life. Romans 8.28 says, We know that in all things, say all things. I don't do this often. Say all things. In all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God works, doesn't sit by and kind of watch as everything goes to pot in your life, going, I hope they get it together soon. In all things, he works together for the good. God is faithful through the storm, and we've just sung that. Through the storm, he is Lord 
the Lord of all. Now, what chapter 7 and the first few verses of chapter 8 are referring to are specific types of trial, specific sufferings. And let's go there now. So Acts chapter 8. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all, except the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea Samaria, uh, and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. It doesn't mean we don't grieve. If you're not affected when we lose somebody, there's some issue there. It's okay to grieve. And it's okay to be open about that. I remember my stepfather's, one of my stepfather's funerals and I, I actually carried him. And my mum was stoic. She was tight-lipped, and, and as, I, as we came out of the church, and I had his coffin on my shoulder, and he was a good man, and I could barely keep myself, and, and, and I could feel my body start to shake, and the tears filling, and the, and the blub, the, the, the uncontrollable emotion coming out, and as I walked past my mum, who I knew was devastated, she was like literally lips tightly closed, forcing back the tears, not wanting to show anybody any emotion. We grieve, and that's okay. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. It goes on to say, but Saul began to destroy the church. If you read the ESV, it says, but Saul was ravishing the church. He was, he was like a wild animal tearing through the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs that he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. Amen. Persecution. We could say it began on that day, and actually it says in in, in verse 1, great persecution broke out in the church on that day. It kind of already started, but that's the day, as Ian said last week, it took a dark turn. Previously, the apostles had been flogged. And and like we can read that in the Bible, like we're reading a bit of Shakespeare, and it, it doesn't really resonate perhaps with us we don't really have an experience of being flogged these days we're talking about a whip that would have was designed to pull flesh off the back so so let's not think for a minute that what happened to the apostles prior was something easy going they had already been whipped but now life itself is at stake and there rose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem the same day that Stephen dies if you'll excuse the phrase but I mean it pretty literally all hell is let loose against the church man woman child it really didn't matter And there were no places to hide. In chapter 3 it says, But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. 
You're not even safe in your own house. He dragged off both men and women. Without discrimination. And we've seen something very similar in the 21st, in the 20th century. You know, the church is still oppressed. It's still persecuted around the world. Open doors. Ranks. 50 countries of concern where Christians face severe persecution. And, and within that 50, 11 countries are ranked as extreme. That means the likelihood of being persecuted and even killed simply for professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is right up there in likelihood. That's in our world in this day, 50 countries. And in May of this year, even the BBC reported that the persecution of Christians was, in their words, at genocidal levels around the world. That is brothers and sisters of yours in Christ, in 50 countries. And the BBC are saying the persecution of Christians around the world is at genocidal levels. It's a report that came through the government uh, authorised by Jeremy Hunt and it also finds that Christians are the most persecuted group around the world. Now, I don't want to belittle persecution of other religions or races because persecution is sick and twisted and it's from the enemy. It is from the pit of hell itself, regardless of its target. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Christians are numerically at the top of their list of most persecuted. And we might not see it here and now in the West, but honestly, it's naive to believe that the West will be immune too much longer. Uh, I don't want to alarm you this morning, and I'm not going to alarm you, but look at this, the rise of secularism. Look at the objection to biblical teaching. And I actually watched N.T. Wright talking about, it was, it was around the issue of marriage, and he was saying, every regime that has persecuted committed genocide that has done X, Y, and Z to, to minimize, marginalize, and eradicate has always started by changing the definition of terms, key words from that culture. And he said marriage has always been defined in this way, and now society is saying marriage is now defined in this way. It is a step. Now that isn't persecution in and of itself, but it is a, a worrying sign of, of the decline within society. And we used to say this was a Christian country. I don't remember that in my lifetime. I was always the odd one out since I've been a believer. But per- persecution isn't just about murder and genocide. They are the ugly extremes of it. It's actually about, and I use this word carefully, intelligent hostility. What I don't mean is like, brilliant, well done. What I mean is that it's clever, it's worked out, it's, it's thought through. It's not just a random, I don't like you, I'm going to hit you. It is planned, it is premeditated. Intelligent hostility and oppression. And actually at first it seeks to devalue, discredit, discriminate, belittle, abuse, mistreat and victimise. 
And as we see this, there's usually a deliberate perpetrator. And we see at the beginning of this chapter, Saul approved of his execution. And Saul went through house to house in Jerusalem, ravaged the church. There's normally a person, a nation, a regime, and always, always a perpetrator. And always behind it, the perpetrator. Behind every evil regime that has ever stood in this world is Satan. He wants to destroy everything that God has made, everything that is good. Uh, And in particular, he hates the son and his bride. Hates. Hates. I can't put enough venom into that and still be a nice, loving pastor. He hates, hates the church. Hates Jesus. He wants to destroy you. I don't know whether he breathes, but if he did, every breath would be a breath to try to murder you. His mission is to destroy the church. And and if he can't do that, because our lives are in God's hands and not his. So if he can't do that, what he does is he looks to kill our confidence in Christ, he, he looks to destroy the power of the Holy Spirit outworking in our lives. Oh, no, I'm, not, I'm not really good enough. I'm not, I'm not clever enough. I'm not, really, I'm not like a pastor and I'm not like a church leader. And I, I shouldn't really, it's not me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not confident in that. That's, that's what the devil does. Uh, and he, he tries to steal our joy. We don't want to be a church of people with flat faces. We, we don't want to be a place where people walk in and go, wow, they're a miserable lot. <laughs> Whoa, I can't wait to get out of there and get some joy. I'm going to the pub. <laughs> we, we want people to see that there's something better in here than in the pub, that you don't need to fill yourself with liquor and, uh, and beer and what have you to have a laugh with your mates, but you can come here and you can find something that's genuinely joyful and welcoming and warm and lovely and beautiful and pure and holy and righteous. And Satan wants to destroy all of that, but listen to this, God. Is still sovereign. He's still faithful through the coming storm. So, what's the effect of persecution? Well, number one on my list that I see in the text is that they were scattered, that the believers were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, little side note remember back to Acts 1, Jesus said, Jerusalem. Samaria to the ends of the earth. Well, this is where it begins. Samaria. Now, to scatter seems like a reasonable response to me. Persecution rises, leg it. It does seem like, a, like sensible. Like, if you, if you don't, there's something kind of probably wrong with you. They, they scatter. Fight or flight, it's inbuilt. We, we often don't even get a say in the matter, you know. I don't like the look of that alley, I'm going to walk over here. Or whatever it is, our, our brains automatically start doing a lot of stuff, doing a lot of our thinking. And actually, though, there's a sense here of being scattered like seeds. Scattered into a, a nice fertile field where they can fall to the ground and perhaps die. In order to grow. 
Now, the thing is about the scattering of seeds, and I love this, because Satan thinks he dispersed the crowd. He thought he had got riot control through Saul. He was the water cannon. He went in there, crowd disperse. And as uh, Gamaliel said, if this isn't of God, they'll scatter. Well, they do scatter. But the problem is they don't die. (laughs) It doesn't stop there. Because instead of just scattering and that's it, that's an end to it, they're scattered with a masterful sower's hand. They don't end up going to Damascus first. They don't end up, you don't hear the first story being about Egypt. You hear the first story following exactly what Jesus said, Samaria. Masterful. What the enemy intended to destroy, God used for his purposes. Controlled. Nothing. And let me say this to you now. Because I'm not trying to belittle suffering. In fact, I want to elevate it to its right, where it is. So we're talking about reality here. God will not waste a single thing that has happened to you. Not waste one drop. Not one bit. The sweat and the blood and the tears that have poured out of you. Nothing's wasted when it's given to the master sower. And the next one is preaching. Number two is preaching. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And actually the Greek there is more like evangelization of the word. It's, they couldn't keep their mouths shut. And, and the devil's like doing little skips in the corner because he sees Saul scattering these guys and thinking we've got them. They're on the run now. But they go. And as they go, they just, they're overjoyed with who God is, with what he's done through Jesus Christ and the good news about Jesus, and they just can't help blabbing it everywhere they go. Talk about when the going gets tough, the tough get going, eh? But the thing is, it's not that they were tough, you know, because you can look at the, the, the disciples from that era and say, well, they were, they were cut from a different cloth back then. They were tough. But you know, the same spirit that lived in them lives in you, raised Christ from the grave. Ascended him into glory. So there's no difference. When they go and get tough, the tough who are full of the Holy Spirit get going because it's him who does the work. These believers were carrying the flame of the light of the world everywhere they went. And every town they went through, every village, every house, every hamlet, they set it on fire with the word of God. Everywhere. Listen, God literally turns opposition into opportunity. If you face opposition in this town, rejoice. Because somewhere around that, there will come an opportunity. And two great examples of this, preaching and scattering, are found in the rest of this chapter, which we won't have time to look into. But watch out for the Go Deeper notes this week, because we will be talking about these these two encounters that, that Philip has. One with a guy called Simon who was a sorcerer and another guy uh, who was an Ethiopian who was on a chariot and, and Philip kind of like runs alongside him and it's an amazing account of an evangelist at work. And Philip is actually one of the seven who we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And he's recognized in later chapters as Philip the evangelist. 
But he's really recognized as such as an example. He wasn't the only evangelist. Because all of them preached the word wherever they were scattered. The church often grows most rapidly when it's under pressure. And I've said this before, and I think it's true that in some of the worst, most oppressive countries, Christianity is growing faster than it is in our nation. A lot faster. So, you know, we could ask why do bad things happen to good people? Actually, they happen to all people. There's no discrimination there. Life will have its difficulties, its trials, its, its awkwardness, its persecution, its, its conflict of interest. Obviously persecution, like we pray that we perhaps can live a life where in our generation that's not really happening. But honestly, there hasn't been a generation since the cross where there hasn't been persecution of Christians around the world. Not one. We might not experience it here and thank the Lord for that. But it is happening. It has been happening. It will be happening until he returns. Why does God allow suffering? Because he can use it to outwork his purposes, to reveal his glory. And we should care about his glory being revealed. Uh, And he uses it to grow us in a way that we cannot grow without it. Whatever you're facing right now, you've got a choice to see it as something that has defeated you or something that is victoriously being brought through that suffering. Because the King of Glory is coming. And with him, there's healing in his wings. And when he comes, he will wipe away every tear. And there will come a day that, as Paul says about creation being like in, in labor, being in, in the throes of childbirth, and it's painful, not that I know a thing about that, but it, it, the, the analogy is that this is excruciatingly painful, but you get to the end of it, you see what has been born through it. And your memory, you don't forget the pain. But you're so overjoyed by what you've received for it. And that's what it's going to be like when we stand before him. Because the glory of his face, (laughs) the glory of his presence, and nothing, nothing that we've been through will compare. Persecution, like all fiery trials, can be used as God's instrument for the growth of the kingdom and for for the growth of the believer. And, And dare I say it, for the joy of the believer. Yes, I dare say it. That persecution can produce joy. That suffering can produce joy. I can say that because I was abused as a child and I've got marks on my body and I've come through that. And I'm joyful about it. And it sounds ridiculous. And if you don't know Jesus, it is ridiculous. But when you know him, when you know what he's doing with it, when you know how he uses that for his glory and how he works that in your life, then it becomes gold. Pure gold. 
It's exactly what Peter and James are talking about. In 1 Peter 4, you don't have to go there, but if you want to write down 12 to 14, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14, he says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. The Bible goes to some length to make it clear to us that suffering is normal. Not because God's a monster who's like, well, I want to make them suffer and to make them feel a bit better about it, I'll make it look like they'll get a reward at the end. That's not how he's working. But he's taking the stuff that binds us, that holds us, that makes us cry, that breaks our heart, that punishes our body, and he'll take it and and he'll take the brokenness and he'll make something beautiful from it every time. Do not be surprised, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Take courage, my friends. Grab hope today. Because no matter what the circumstances look like, his presence is upon you. And you will see his face and you will be overjoyed in his presence. It won't be wasted. He may not have caused it, but he will use it for his glory. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down and green pastures he leads me beside the quiet waters he restores my soul for his name's sake we benefit from God being glorified because God loves you but, but his healing isn't primarily about you not having pain his restoration isn't primarily about you breaking free from, from whatever it is that has held you back the primary reason why God does all this and he does it and we benefit from it but the primary reason is because he is glorified and when he's glorified his bride is glorified with him and just for a bit of perspective but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ I'm thankful that as God allows me to participate in the sufferings of Christ. He's put a cap on it. Maybe that's not going to last my whole life, but it seems like he's put a cap on that. Because to really experience the suffering of Christ, he was unrecognizable. That's how much he was beaten You know how much you have to hit somebody for them to be unrecognisable? The the, the skin on his back and around his sides was coming off. He had to carry his own instrument of death on his shoulders until the point where he couldn't. And he almost died on the journey to the hill because of the weight 
he's hung. Not just with ropes, but, but with chunky, rusty nails that were driven through his wrists and through his ankles. And if that wasn't enough, he was hung on a cross where to breathe he had to pull himself up to fill his lungs. But pulling himself up meant pulling on the nails. And to let go would mean that his, his pressure would all be on his feet and the, the pain of the nails through his feet. Agonising I'm so thankful that God's put a cap on that for me. I'm so thankful to Jesus for what he did. And I'm so thankful that God put a cap on that for me. It's for his glory. He can take the most horrendous, the most aggressive trials in our lives and redeem them for his glory and we have the power also in his name to redeem things for his glory you know I wrestled with whether we should have a Christmas tree in here because could somebody grab me a tissue if that's all right otherwise it's going to get ugly in a minute <laughs> because of having a tree in the house of the Lord I really wrestled with it should we do that should we do that but uh, and because the tree honestly used to be a pagan symbol and should we be bringing a pagan symbol into the church and do you know what I thought I thought this we can redeem that for his glory we can redeem it. Because it's kind of beautiful. And he made the tree. It's not Satan's. My, my guitar. It wasn't built by a Christian that I know of. It wasn't built with worship in mind that I know of. But when it's in my hands as an instrument and I use it, it becomes an instrument of worship. I can redeem that non-Christian, unbelieving guitar for the kingdom. And we can do that. And we can pray redemption over this town and take what is lost and, and make it found in Jesus' name. For his glory, for his purposes. And it's also for our benefit because he turns our weaknesses into his opportunities so that the glory goes to him. And I can agree with Paul who says, I can rejoice in my sufferings in Romans 5.3. And with, with James who tells me to count it as joy when I face trials of various kinds in James 1 verse 2. Suffering is helpful, it's beneficial, it's necessary, like physical exercise. And we'll go back to Graham here because he's like in peak condition for his 74 years. <laughs> and, and I know he's, he's a guy who, who works out of the gym and I know I'm a guy that should work out of the gym. The thing is, you, you don't get anywhere at the gym if you just go sit in the sauna in, in the hot tub and go, oh, let, the, let the fat evaporate from me. <laughs> it's, just, it's not going to happen. If I want to change my shape, I need to put effort in, and that effort is going to cause sweat and it's going to cause pain. If I want killer biceps, I know what you're thinking. If I want killer biceps, I, I've got to take strain and I've got to make it work and make it go beyond where it hurts in order to get the achieved uh, kind of physique that I want spiritually. Stretch comes through suffering. Spiritually, muscle development comes through trials. And just as, you know, you, you can't sit there and think, oh, I wish I had a, you know, like a slightly fitter looking pastor, if I'm not prepared to go down to the gym and, and, and go sort that out. Actually, probably a better analogy is like, 
Jess can't have a slightly fit husband unless I go down to the gym and sort it out. Suffering is helpful, beneficial, and necessary. And the purpose, there's purpose in your pain. And it's not cruelty, there's purpose in the exercise. And there's a trap in believing that, that we'll be better or stronger or more godly when things are good. That we'll be more close to God if things are going well in our lives. Uh, the opposite is normally true. When things go well, we wander. We get distracted. And we believe we did it ourselves. <laughs> Clever me. But actually, suffering refocuses us on God. And it's for our joy that you may be overjoyed at his glorious revealing. How do we cope with this? Firstly, you're not alone. God is with you. Psalm 46 says he is a very present help in times of trouble or an ever-present help. I believe the Bible. Whether you translate it as very or ever, I'll take either. God is there. He's very there in your sufferings. He's very there. And it's all about the Holy Spirit. That's how we cope. If you, if, you haven't, if you haven't experienced the infilling, if you're a believer today, you have the Holy Spirit. But if you haven't experienced that, that bubbling over, that infilling, we need it regularly. So even if you haven't experienced it for a while, get on your knees before him and ask. Because that is the power source. The Holy Spirit, he is the power source. He's the comforter. He's the one who, who provides strength and wisdom and resolve and victory in our lives. Persecution to proclamation. Problems to praise. Pain to promise. Now I'm going to wrap this up. You may feel that the circumstances in your life are only leading to disaster, but... When our circumstances and our responses to those circumstances are submitted to him. When our hearts are yielded to his lordship. When trust is applied to the living God. We may well look back and see that what appeared to be random, out of control, was in fact all along in the hands of the master sower. He's done it before, church. He'll do it again. He's got a proven track record in this. Check this out. When Job lost everything, all of his children, all of his wealth, and even his health, it looked like the only thing left to be taken from him was his life. And when Joseph was thrown into the pit and then into prison, and it looked like defeat, and when the ark of God's presence and promise was carted off by the Philistines and, and placed in, in the temple of their false god, Dagon, it looked like disaster. And when Daniel was thrown into the den of beasts, and when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fire, and when the author of life hung on a cross, it looked like the enemy had won. But... Job had twice as much after the storm. Joseph was placed strategically to pave the way for the salvation, effectively, of his entire family to save them from the famine. That The Philistines' god Dagon couldn't stand in the presence of the ark. And the Philistines couldn't wait to give the ark back after that point. And in our world, no false god can stand ultimately in his presence. And the lion's mouths were closed. 
And another man walked in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he was observed by the king to look like a God-man. And that same God-man walks with us. And he, having breathed his last, hung on a criminal's cross, did not stay dead, but was raised to new life. And in doing so, raises us also into newness of life in victory. The gospel cannot be quelled, it cannot be quenched, it cannot be silenced. And so what happens when I go out in faith? God moves in power and the kingdom grows and I grow. God is near in the fire. He is present in the valley of the shadow. He is faithful through the storm. Amen. Amen.